Hey, everybody. How's everyone doing? How's my C12 family doing? If you are C12 repping in this house, let me hear you shout. Let me just say that it is indeed an honor and a privilege to be back. As it was stated, it was a year ago that I had the opportunity of being before you and had such a phenomenal time here. I've been itching and itching to come back, and I'm so glad to be here today. Listen, uh, I don't know if you realize this, but C12 happens to be the talk of the town. Everybody's talking about C12. And they say, if you want to enter into an environment where people are passionate about God, on fire for his word, willing to go in and worship, then the environment you need to go to is C12. And based on all that I've heard and all that I've seen here tonight, I think they're absolutely right. And so there is this, I don't know, this secret sauce that's in this room that makes what you do here so uniquely powerful. And there's so many ingredients involved in that, but, but one of the ingredients that I can identify would be your youth. Because there's something about youth that's powerful and passionate, and there's something about youth that energizes and electrifies an atmosphere. And really, when you think about uh, world history, if you go all the way back into the annals of time, major shifts and major movements have been impacted when young people have gotten involved. Most of the revolutions that have taken place in this world, young people were at the core and the crux and the foundation of it all. If we're talking about the social revolution back in the 50s and 60s during the civil rights movement or while people were, I don't know, protesting Vietnam, it was young people who were on the forefront of that movement. When we talk about the technological movement, you've had young people who have always been involved in that. You had a guy by the name of what, Mark Zuckerberg, right? who came up with an idea to change the way we interact on, online through social media and completely revolutionize technology. Young people at the start of that started with Facebook and then Instagram and then Twitter and then Snapchat, and now all of a sudden it's become an international phenomenon. When you're thinking about spiritual revolutions, young people have always been at the forefront. See, God puts passion in you, and he doesn't wait until you become legal, or he doesn't wait until you become old to give you your giftings and to give you your gifts. God can use you in the ages of your youth. In fact, we know in the Bible how God used David. David was 15, 16 years old when God used him. We can see Daniel and the three Hebrew boys. They were young people. The Bible from Genesis to Revelations is so ripe with young people who are, who are on, hold on, hold on. See, the enemy's mad because I got something powerful for you guys tonight. <laughs> We're going to try this one more time. Test it. There we go. All right. All right. So listen, 1 Corinthians, the fourth chapter, the 12th verse, it simply says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. See, young people are rising up all over the world. It's time for you to rise and take your place. And so before we get into tonight's word, let's just take this opportunity uh, to close our eyes, bow our heads, and pray. Father God, I thank you for every individual in this place. I thank you for the passion and the fire and the tenacity and the stick to that every individual has here who continues to come back week after week because they're hungry and thirsty for your word. Father God, I just ask that you will establish my thoughts and think through my mind. Pray that you will anoint my tongue and speak through my mouth. 
I ask that you would give me words that will be like seeds deposited into the hearts of every man and woman in this place, that it will produce a harvest of change and transformation that will change us from the inside out. Father, we thank you because of your son, Jesus. It's because of Jesus we have salvation. It's because of Jesus we are redeemed. It is because of Jesus that the shackles have been broken over our lives, and we are, we are free and free in you. And so we thank you, Father, for what you're going to do tonight, how lives will be changed, souls will be saved, and people will be delivered. And all these things we ask you and we thank you for. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Listen, I'm excited tonight because on last week you started a phenomenal series called Long Story Short. And it's an opportunity for us to really dig into the word of God and to find scripture uh, that is impactful. Now, some of these stories you may have heard before, some of you may not have heard. But on last week, Alex Carney did such an amazing job teaching on Jonah, did he not? And so it's an honor to follow up behind him, but I've got big shoes to fill. And so I want to share with you some things here tonight. And, and listen, I just want to encourage you, whether you're new uh, to a Bible or whether you've been in it for a long time, you must understand that the Bible uh, is the B-I-B-L-E, the basic instructions before leaving earth. And it is a living, breathing organism. It has a heart and a pulse. It lives. And the Bible says that the word of God is quick and powerful and sharp than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So in essence, what it's saying is that when the word of God gets in you, it's sharp like a knife and it cuts in between your spirit and your soul, between your muscles and your bones, between your mind and your spirit. And when you get it in you and it becomes one with you, it becomes a part of the DNA of who you are. It begins to transform you from the inside out. There's a scripture that says, Jesus says, if you um, abide in me and my word abides in you, you can ask whatever you want and it will be given unto you. Not that you'll get what you ultimately desire the way the world desires things, but when you have the word of God on the inside of you, you have the will of God on the inside of you. And if you know his will, whatever you desire according to his will, he'll give it to you. So the word is powerful. And so I would encourage you to enter into a love affair with the word of God. And so if you're an individual who loves reading great novels, Pick up your Bible because there's some fantastic stories in that book. If you're a person who loves poetry, well, guess what? All throughout the Old Testament, you can find all types of poems and songs. If you're a person who's looking for inspiration and motivation, well, guess what? The Bible is one of the best inspirational books of all times. If you're looking for principles and, and, and guidelines of how to live your life, you can find it in the scripture. Uh, stories on family, stories on faith, stories on health, stories on success. Whatever you're looking for is found in this word. And so we're going to take the time to dig into this word here tonight. But before we get started, I just have one question to ask you. Can I be real with you here tonight? Can I tell it like it is? Can I tell the truth tonight? See, because when you tell the truth, you have to understand that it is not truth or consequences. It's truth and consequences, because there's always going to be consequences for telling the truth. Because the truth doesn't always feel good. The truth doesn't always sound good. The truth isn't always popular. But when the sword of truth cuts, it just cuts. And wherever it cuts into us, it's meant to correct us. Amen? So we're going to deal with truth tonight. And so I want to talk to you about a powerful story that I've read several times over that I've come to love. And it's the story of David 
and Bathsheba. And so if I could put a title to this, it would be David and Bathsheba, Sex, Lies, and Pardon. And so it would be when you really understand this story, it's like a combination between scandal, how to get away with murder, and the bachelorette all wrapped up into one. And so if you would turn with me to 2 Samuel, the 11th chapter, we're going to be reading from the first to the fifth verse. So if you have your Bibles, uh, a second chant, uh, 2 Samuel is directly after 1 Samuel. Okay? In the Old Testament. Very good. If you have your cell phones or tablets or whatever your devices are, you could take those out. Uh, if you don't have them, we'll have this up on the screen so that you can follow along as I read out loud. But 2 Samuel, uh, the 11th chapter, the first through the fifth verse. It reads as follows. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. And one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of his palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. This woman was very beautiful. Somebody say beautiful. And David sent someone to find out who she was. And the man said, she is Bathsheba the daughter of Iliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself for the monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So in order for us to truly unpack this story, I think it's important if we first uh, focus on the two main characters in this book, David and Bathsheba. Now, we all know that David was a king, uh, but oftentimes we are so focused on people's current success that we don't really take a look at the journey they took to get there. And this is an individual who had a string of successes and a string of accomplishments that ultimately got him into the position as a king. Now, David, if you don't remember, he was known for being the one who actually killed the Philistine who went by the name of Goliath with a slingshot. This is an individual who was a decorated military man who served under King Saul. He was recorded in Hebrew 11. Now, if you don't know anything about Hebrew chapter 11, this is what we call the Faith Hall of Fame. So all of the biblical characters who have done great and mighty things from Genesis to Revelations are in that particular uh, scripture. And he's recorded because of his awesome works. David was a descendant of Jesus. Literally, he's part of the royal line. Also, David is a poet and a psalmist. So as you read the book of Psalms, many of these great uh, uh, scriptures are written by King David. So he had many wonderful attributes. There were many things about him that we could celebrate. But David also had a weakness. See, David, he was a he-man with a she-weakness. Because even though he loved God, he also loved women. The Bible records that he actually had seven wives and multiple concubines. Now, this is nothing in comparison to his son Solomon, who was known and recorded for having 700 wives and 300 concubines, but yet and still, he had a passion for pleasure. 
And, and here's the reality. The desire for sex will not be satisfied even if you have a full harem of women. And if you don't know what a harem is, a harem is basically a group of women that is reserved just for the king uh, for his pleasures. And even though he had wives and even though he had all of these women in his harem, uh, every time he desired woman, it, women, it did not satisfy. It created yet more desire for more. So it was an unquenchable desire that could never be fixed. And so one day while he was walking on the roof of his palace, he spots Bathsheba. Now, who's Bathsheba? Bathsheba is recorded in Scripture as being a beautiful woman. Now, this is something to really talk about because oftentimes you don't typically find that adjective attached to a person in Scripture. So it's an overemphasis that she was beautiful. But it goes on to describe who she was. It says that she was the wife of Uriah. Now, why is that important? Because David was reminded that she belonged to someone. She was in a covenant relationship with another man. And so he, in his arrogance, in his pride, in his hunger, in his desire, pursued it regardless of who she was committed to. Now, Uriah wasn't just any man. Uriah was one of his most declarated soldiers, one of his most loyal soldiers that helped win battles for the king. But Bathsheba was also the granddaughter of one of David's senior government officials. So when he pursued her, there were multiple betrayals that took place. Number one, he betrayed Uriah, one of his greatest soldiers. He betrayed the grandfather who was one of the highest officials in the government. He betrayed Bathsheba for defaming her. He betrayed his wives. He betrayed his name, and most importantly, he betrayed God. So number one, we see that David was guilty of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Somebody say wrong place. Wrong time. Has anybody here ever been in the wrong place at the wrong time? and got us in trouble, right? But, but maybe for you, it wasn't a geographical location. Maybe it wasn't a jurisdiction. Maybe it wasn't a location that we could point to. But sometimes being in the wrong place could simply mean being in the wrong place in your life, right? You're not where you're supposed to be spiritually or, or, or relationally or, or intellectually or, 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 or in terms of family. You're just disconnected from the place that you know you're supposed to be in. And oftentimes when you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, that's when we typically get into trouble. I remember when I was young in my early 20s, I was guilty of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And see, when you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, oftentimes you know it because you've been given a foundation from childhood that makes you consciously aware of what you're doing. See, because I was that individual who uh, grew up in a pretty religious family. You know, I grew up in the church. I had a mom and dad who went every single Sunday uh, to church, and then there was afternoon service, and then there was night service, and then there was midweek service, and then there was prayer night. And so we're in church several times a week, and I was that individual who had always been taught by mom and dad and everybody in the church to honor your body and respect yourself and, and to wait till you get married to have sex. Anybody ever heard that before? Anybody in the room? Well, that was, that was my story. And so it's a message that I held on to for, for many, many years. And so all throughout my elementary school and in my middle school and in my high school, even into college, I, I held to that message. And so I was a virgin when I entered into my college uh, campus. 
But then there was that one relationship. Somebody say one relationship that changed the game. And in the midst of that one relationship, see, this was the relationship. You know, you ever been in a relationship that nobody likes the person that you're dating? Like everybody, like nobody likes her. Like my parents didn't like her. My friends didn't like her. The dog didn't. Nobody liked her. But when you're so in love and so enamored, you reject the wisdom and the common sense of everyone around you because you're emotionally attached. But it was in that one relationship that my life began to spiral out of control. Because in that one relationship, I experienced everything from un, uh, uh, premarital sex, unplanned pregnancy, constant cheating, the threat of an STD, breaking up just to get back together again, and repeating the cycle again and again and again. And even though my mind was telling me to get out, my body kept pulling me right back into this relationship. And us with our foolish selves, we thought that the best way to solve the problem of our horrible, horrific, five-year-long, miserable relationship was to go ahead and get married. Crazy, right? Because we thought that marriage would solve our problems. And so on three occasions, we attempted to get married. So I'm from Jersey. And so we decided that we were going to elope. So we got up in our car and drove up the highway and crossed state lines and stood before a judge. But for some reason, as we're standing there, we just couldn't do it. The second time we attempted to elope again and took the blood test and, and did all the paperwork and on our way there. But for some reason, we got turned around and, and, and we just couldn't go through this experience. And I remember the third time, you know, because three times is a charm, we attempted to do it yet again. And this time, we were just three weeks before the wedding. We sent out invitations. We made the announcement. Uh, uh, the honeymoon was paid for. The apartment was rented. The furniture was purchased. The, the, the dresses had been made. The tuxedos had been rented. The gifts had been given. But just two weeks, three weeks before walking down the aisle, we got into one of those heated arguments that was so typical for us. And in the midst of that argument, she looked me dead in my eyes and said, Hassani, that's why you're going to be womanless for the rest of your life because I'm going to probably wind up cheating on you anyway. This is two weeks before walking down the aisle. How many know that marriage never took place? And so the pain that I had gone through was a result of me being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And so it's interesting because when we read the scripture, uh, it talks about the warning that God had given David and the warning that God had given so many kings. And we find in Deuteronomy, the 17th chapter, the 17th verse, it says that the king must not take many wives for himself because they will turn his heart away from the Lord. But how many know it doesn't take many men or many women? All it takes is the wrong man or the wrong woman. And so for me in my life, in my relationship, it was the wrong man, the wrong woman, excuse me. <laughs> the wrong woman, <laughs> Freudian slip. <laughs> that would have really been wrong at that time. 
And so here we see God is constantly giving us reminders, constantly giving David a reminder about the importance of operating in sexual purity. Listen, David, I've given you a kingdom. I've given you wealth. You have wives. You have concubines. Why do you want more? Operate in sexual integrity. And the reality is, as believers, as young people, we're in an environment called C12. We're in a church called 12 Stone, where we're constantly being surrounded by positive people who are reinforcing the message of living life for God and doing things his way and operating in integrity. And we know that the scripture has created a five-fold ministry that we all can benefit from. Now, let's just take this in the context of living sexually pure. God has set up his five-fold ministry to reinforce this message. And we find in Ephesians, the fourth chapter, the 11th verse, it says, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In essence, what that simply says is he's given us pastors and evangelists and teachers and preachers and all of these individuals with all of these gifts to reinforce the same message of walking in sexual integrity. But even though we hear these messages every single Thursday night, every single Sunday, in the environments that we're in, we know that Satan also has an objective. And his objective is to share a message of sexual perversion. And we know that when we are walking in integrity, the enemy is mad. And so just as God has his fivefold, we know that Satan is nothing more than a duplicator and a perverter of God's system. And so Satan has his fivefold, and his message is to get us to do the very opposite of what God wants us to do. And interestingly enough, according to the Hassani uh, version in Ephesians 4.11, Satan has his fivefold, and this is what it says. And he gave some, here's his fivefold, television and some radio and some film and some print media, and some internet for the perverting of the saints, for the works of Satan's ministry, for the destroying of the body of Christ, till we all come down to destruction. So, Satan has a plan and an agenda, and it's to get us off the path of God. Now, there's nothing wrong with television and radio and internet and print media and, and, and movies. There's nothing wrong with those. But it's how these are used to manipulate a message that perpetuates negativity in terms of how we walk with God. And so it's not about the thing, but how the thing is being used. And so if we're not clear and if we're not, uh, our eyes aren't open and our ears aren't open to what the enemy is trying to do, we may miss it every single time. And so when I think about my first experience with my girlfriend, that one relationship that turned the course, the reality is I was trapped in shame. And when you're trapped in shame, what you try to do is cover up. And what you try to do is keep yourself from being exposed. 
And when you try to keep yourself from being exposed, the first thing that you do is you deny. You lie. You cover up. You justify. You minimize the impact of what has happened because you're trapped in shame. So when David got Bathsheba pregnant, the first thing he tried to do was to cover up what had happened. So he devised a plan that he thought would work because he knew that even though he was the king, if he had ever been discovered for what he did, his punishment would be death. And as a king, he could not allow that to happen. So what does he do? He calls for Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, pulls him from the battlefield and tells him to come on home. So Uriah stands before the king, and the king is having casual conversations with Uriah, and Uriah is not understanding what's happening. Like, why would you call me from the battlefield? We're engaged in battle. We're trying to win this war. Why am I here? He says, listen, you know, relax. You've been fighting long enough. You've been doing a great job. Why don't you go home and enjoy the pleasures of your wife? Actually, the scripture says, why don't you go home and wash your feet? That's code word for get your woman. But because Uriah was such a committed man, because he had character and integrity and did not want to enjoy the pleasures of his wife as his soldiers were on the battlefield risking their lives, he refused to sleep with his wife. So instead, he slept on the couch. So the next day when he went to David, David said, well, did you enjoy your wife? He said, no, David, I couldn't do it. I had to stand in integrity and I refused to, to fulfill my sexual desires with my own wife. He wouldn't have to tell me twice. It would have been a done deal on the first command, but he did not do it. And so David did, decided to do something else. He said, this time I'm going to get him drunk. So he fed him with alcohol to the point where he got drunk and then sent him home to engage in sex with his wife. But even in his sluggish state, even though he was inebriated with all of this wine, he would not sleep with his wife. He decided to sleep with his soldiers. David realized, I'm in trouble. Something's got to be done. This time, he said, this has got to work. The third attempt, he wrote a letter and sealed it and gave it to Uriah, sent him back into the battlefield to hand the letter to Joab, who happened to be the general of the army. And when Joab opened up the letter, the letter said, take Uriah, put him on the front line so that when the enemy attacks, he's the first one to die. So David conspired against his greatest soldier to hide his sin. And as a result of that, Uriah died. And immediately, David marries Bathsheba before she gives birth to a child. He hides his sin. Oftentimes, this is what we do. We're trying to hide the sins. And so the, the reality is, is there's so many men and women of the Bible who are known for being great men and women of God, but yet they do so horrible things. And when you think about the heroes of Christianity, we see that many have fallen. Even though they were great men, they've done some, some pretty scrupulous things. Matter of fact, Abraham, who was a man of faith, lied about his wife in front of the king and put his wife in a compromising position. Jacob, his name was known for being a deceiver. Moses was an individual who was constantly disobedient to God. We see that Peter denied Jesus three times, and David is one who committed adultery and murder. And many of us read these stories and we say, I would never do such a thing. No, not I. And so in our own self-righteousness, we say that we could never be put in a position to do something so horrible. But the question is not what you would not do. The question is, what would you do? Because the reality is, 
It's the little compromise. It's the little decision that becomes the slippery slope and leads us down a path of destruction. So several months go by. David thinks he's good now. Everything's solved. He's married. He's got a child. But all of a sudden, God raises up a man of God to send a message to David. If we go to the book of 2 Samuel, the 12th chapter, the first through the seventh verse, it begins to unpack the story. Here's Nathan having a conversation with David. Verse 12, verse 1, the Lord sent Nathan to David, and when he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very large numbers of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except little ewe lambs that he had bought. He raised it and grew it with them and, and with his children and shared his food and drank from the cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of the own sheep or cattle to, pre to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for one who had come to him. When David heard this, the Bible says that David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he has done such a thing that had no pity. And David pauses and looks at him and says, you are that man. You were the very one who had everything and yet took what did not belong to you, and as a result of it, here you are. And the Bible talks about how God ultimately forgave David, but there were consequences for his actions. And those consequences are pretty graphic. Consequence number one, Bathsheba became pregnant. Consequence number two, David killed Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, in order to hide his sin. Consequence number four, David's daughter Tamar is raped by her half-brother Amnon. Consequence number five, David's third son Absalom avenges his sister's abuse by killing the brother Amnon. Consequence number six, Absalom overthrows David's rule and takes the throne as king. Consequence number seven, Absalom humiliates David by sleeping with his wives and concubines. Consequence number eight, Absalom is killed in battle. So here we see, as a result of one sexual act, four people being killed, one raped, a number of wives forced into adultery, and an entire nation overthrown, all because of one sexual sin. So what David thought he was doing behind closed doors, which was nobody else's business but his own, the reality is what you do behind closed doors can affect an entire generation of people. And so when God gives us commandments on how we should live for him, even in our youth, he wants us to operate in integrity. He wants us to operate in character. He doesn't want us to hide our sin. He wants us to confess our sin so that he does not depart from us. And so there's application in this story that we can begin to apply to our lives. The question is, number one, are you killing sin or is sin killing you? 
Romans chapter 7, uh, begins to share something that's very insightful. It says, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwell of no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. For if I do that which I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find in the law that when I would do good, evil is present with me, for I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I find another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? My mind, my mind, my mind is warring with my flesh, and inside of me there's a battle going on. How do I save myself from myself? See, there's an internal battle between our spirits and our flesh. And so the question is, are you killing sin or is sin killing you? Well, the practical way to begin to kill sin is to do this, to feed your spirit and starve your flesh. So in my 20s, one of my greatest desires was music. And I would constantly feed myself with one of my favorite artists at that time who happened to be Prince. Now, if you know anything about Prince, Prince has some of the most sexual, sensual songs that were ever created. And even though I'm trying to do the right thing and I'm trying to honor God, yet I'm feeding myself with music and with messaging that's getting me or giving me a desire to do the opposite of the lifestyle that I was trying to live. So I had to cover my eye gates, cover my ear gates, cover my mouth gate, because whatever I'd allowed in will begin to grow and develop and then come out. So one of the things that you can do to begin to kill sin in your life is to feed your spirit with the word, feed your spirit by fellowshipping with other believers, feed your spirit by coming to C12, feed your spirit by going to church on Sunday, feed your spirit by connecting with other Christians who are on the path and living a life of integrity. And as long as you're feeding your spirit at the same time you're starving your flesh, and you're able to overcome the temptations that tempt to consume you. The, another, the second thing you must do, the second application is this. Find a Nathan in your life. God rose Nathan up to deliver a message to David. I'm sure Nathan, this prophet, was very uncomfortable going before the king and exposing him. Because what we try to do is deny everything that we're guilty of. We're guilty. Matter of fact, when people are caught, we will take the truth to the end. We'll take it to the grave and deny everything. And I can imagine the conversation that took place between Nathan and David. Nathan goes to David and says, listen, um, uh, the word on the street is uh, you've been sleeping with Bathsheba. And he was just like, nope, not me. Didn't do it. Uh, but, but, but David, listen, they found pictures. They're literally pictures of you and Bathsheba walking in the park, holding hands. And he's like, nope, Photoshop." And he's just like, well, well, no, David, we've actually got you on video. The, the tape leaked. It's all over the Internet. It's spreading. That's you in the video, guy. He's like, nope. Uh, um, After Effects. He said, but David, no, 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 you don't understand. Uh, the, the, the phone conversations were recorded. Like, there's hours and hours and hours of tapes of you talking to her. We've heard the conversations. He's like, nope, impersonation. David, no, no, you don't understand. We found the written confession. We have it. We have all the details of what you were going to do before you did it and your journal explaining everything you did after you did. He said, nope, forged. David, listen, 
We brought in CSI detectives. They sprayed the entire location. They put powder down. They got your fingerprints. It's you, guy. Nope, no fingers. So people try to deny everything. But when you live a life of denial, when you try to hide your sin, it comes out anyway. So when you have people in your life like Nathan who will speak truth into your life, when you surround yourself with other positive individuals that keep you on the right path, it makes sure that you maintain your integrity. The third thing that you must do is you must be a Nathan in someone else's life. See, the reality is the things that you've gone through are not just for you. They're for other people. The struggles you've faced, the bad relationships you've been in, the mistakes you've made, the addictions you've overcome, all of those things were not just so that you could overcome and live your own life and tell your own story for your own benefit, but it was be, it's supposed to be used as you help minister other people out of their situation. Just like that horrible relationship that I was in for five years, when I shared that story with others, it helps pull people out of their situation in five minutes if they obey the, the instructions and the wisdom that I share with them so that they don't have to go through what I go through. So you need to be a Nathan in someone else's life. And then the fourth step that we must have is this. We must understand that God pardons sin. That even though David suffered so many consequences, that even though destruction came to his household, that even though his kingdom was turned upside down, what you go through in your hardship is just for a season. Because we serve a loving God, he's a God that forgives. One of the biggest challenges that we as believers have is believing that God will actually forgive us. So we struggle to come to church. We struggle to go to C12. We struggle to have relationships with other people who call themselves believers because we believe that God will never forgive us, that what we've done is so horrible and so bad that we'll never make it into the kingdom. So shame begins to cripple us. One of the other challenges that we have is accepting and forgiving ourselves for what we've done. So not only do we struggle to allow God to forgive us or believe that he will, we struggle to forgive ourselves. And so we live in a life of shame and guilt and perpetual misery and we live low lives and we don't believe that we 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 deserve anything in life because of what we've done in our past but understand if you hear nothing else i say you are not your past you are not what you've gone through you are not the mistakes that you've made you are not the challenges that you've gone through in fact those things have not defined you but they've helped to shape who you've become See, when you have Christ on the inside of you and when you have his identity within you, when you go through pressures and storms in life, you soon begin to realize that these are weights that you can't carry on your own and that God gives you the grace to go through it. And if anybody in this room is going through something, that's something to be hopeful and to celebrate about because it means that you're coming out on the other side. If I'm going through, it means eventually I'll get to my destination and I'll be free from the hurt and the pain and the shame and the rejection and all of the misery that I've placed myself in. And so all of you have an opportunity today to understand what happened in this story, to see the slippery slope that David began to go down and to realize that if that's been you, God can deliver you, that God has a plan for you, that your best days are ahead of you, not behind you. And so as we close out today, I want to encourage you that in your youth, 
There's so many gifts and talents and abilities that God has given you. And he wants you to step out of your shell, to step out of your shadow and begin to embrace what he's called you to do so that you can be a mighty man and woman of God as we've shared tonight. So, Father God, I thank you for every individual in this room, everyone who happens to be going through trials and tribulations, everyone who's been struggling with self-doubt and rejection and, and just guilt and shame, Lord God, for things that we've done in our past. Father God, I just pray that you will help to soak and saturate them with your word, that they would not listen to the negative voices that continue to haunt them, that they will not listen to the, the messages uh, in the world that will cause them to think that they're not worthy, but help them to realize that they are children, sons, and daughters of God. And Father, as they begin to read your word, it will be a reminder that the Bible is nothing more than a mirror image of who they are. Strengthen them, encourage them, develop them, show them their purpose, help them to overcome their struggles. Father God, there's so much that they're supposed to do. The world is going to be changed because of what you've placed in them that needs to be birthed out. And so, Father God, I pray blessings over every individual here. Open up their eyes to see, open up their ears to hear, open up their hearts to receive the power of your word. And we forever give you the glory, the honor, and the praise for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.